Well, good morning, church. Take your Bibles and open your English translation to Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 25. And I don't know what kind of week you've had, but can I remind you, you're in church. And this is a moment for us just to stop and pause and to be reminded of what's true, who you are in Christ, what your trajectory looks like because of Jesus, and we get to open up the inerrant, infallible, true word of God and consider great truths and oh, how we need it. When you leave the sanctuary this morning and as you make your way out into the atrium, I want you to do something. I want you to turn around and look back at the sanctuary wall because there's a bulkhead that wraps around this sanctuary and we designed it to be that way, a bulkhead that kind of wraps its arms around this very space. On that bulkhead are our core values as a church. And there are six phrases on that bulkhead that describe the unique way that we live out our life as a church. We are one of many faithful gospel preaching churches in this city. On your way to church today, you drove by many churches that are faithfully heralding the good news, and we praise God for them. We thank God for them. Just so you know, we're not the only gig in town, so we're glad that you're here. These values describe the unique way that we do life together. They are the preeminence of Jesus, the authority of the word, redemptive community, biblical unity and diversity, extravagant grace, and the call to go. These six values are really important because they serve to anchor us. They serve to connect us to the past. They serve to remind us who we are, and they also serve to reassure us. Reassurance is important because, I don't know about you, but does it feel like a lot is changing right now? Do you feel the stress of that? I was having a conversation with a church member recently, and she made a statement that I think is spot on. Here's what she said. She said, you know, I've moved many times in my lifetime, found a new city, a new church, new home, new schools, and what it feels like right now is I've moved, but I haven't. My neighborhood is new. My schools are new. Friendships are new, church is new. When we moved here to Indianapolis, my, my wife said to me, honey, my goal is to move to Indianapolis and in the process, not sin. <laughs> why, do, why do we resonate with that? Because moving is so incredibly stressful. And here's the thing, we all moved in the last 18 months at the exact same time. We all feel that stress. That's why these values are really important. For example, the preeminence of Jesus is why we connect every sermon to the gospel. We want you to look like Jesus. That's the goal. The authority of the word is why we walk through a particular text in the Bible and while, why we're going to be back in Isaiah 40 next week as we start the second section of our journey through this great Old Testament book. Redemptive community is why we want you to join the church and then find a group or a class, a place to make a big church small, and to do that quickly. 
Biblical unity and diversity is why we try to distinguish between doctrinal essentials and non-essentials. What do you have to believe to be a Christian and to be a member? And what are the things that we can disagree about but still love each other? That, that's still supposed to be a thing, right? It's also why ethnic harmony and reconciliation are important gospel issues. Extravagant grace is why one out of every three dollars that you give, we give away. Right now, we're in the process of trying to sell a building that was given to us and we renovated in the Brookside area, a church building that we called the beach. It was a, a sort of a, a beach uh, front, if you will, for a bunch of ministries and a church needs that building. And so we know what the appraised value is, but we're not gonna sell that building to the church for the appraised value. We're gonna sell it to them for what they can actually afford. You notice that the screens are a little brighter. We got some new cameras, thanks to your generosity. And two weeks ago, I watched as one of our production people were wheeling out the old cameras because we donated them to another church that didn't have any way to be able to broadcast online. We wanna be able to show that we're good resource uh, senders with our financial resources. But it's that last value, the call to go, which is why we're here today. The call to go is essentially how we think about our neighbors, our city, and the world. Yesterday, my mind was blown away. We had a trunk or treat event. I don't know how many people here were here. I thought maybe we'd have 70 or 80. There was probably 1,000 people, and most of them I didn't recognize or know because they were from the community. And we're hearing right now, this morning, amazing stories about conversations. <laughs> conversations with people about big questions. And you may be here this morning or watching online this morning because of that very event. See, we, we're concerned about our neighbors, specifically those who live within the five mile radius. We're concerned about our city, realizing our city needs help. And we just gonna sort of hole up in our little comfortable world and think about Jesus every week on Sunday and not be concerned about what's happening in our city. We can't do that. And when it comes to global evangelism, we have to be reminded that there's a big world and we're not the center of it. What's important is that these values, these six core values remain the same. The expression of them, the application of them needs to be flexible and different. Last week we were walking through an elder questionnaire, the kind of questions that we ask people who are elder candidates. And it was interesting, there were three questions on that elder questionnaire that just aren't really relevant anymore because the issues that are sort of defining evangelicalism are very different in 2021 than what they were in 2000. The fact of the matter is, is that there are certain values that remain the same while the world changes. And the church on Reformation Sunday ought to be always reforming always asking ourselves the question, what's the most strategic way that we as a people can engage our world and share the good news of Jesus Christ? So today we're talking about the call to go, specifically global evangelism. I love these weeks because they remind me what I know intellectually to be true, but I tend to forget. I know that there are billions of people who need to hear the name of Jesus, but it's so easy to get stuck in my everyday life, even as a pastor serving a local church and forget there's a world of people, if we don't do anything, are never gonna hear the name of Jesus. So as we wrap up these three Sundays, I'd like for us to consider 
some lessons from the eighth chapter of Romans that we learn about the world. My goal in choosing this text is to help us regain our perspective, maybe keep broadening our horizon and to think globally. Romans 8, beginning in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Here's some characteristics of the world. Number one, the world is waiting. The world is waiting. The book of Romans, as you heard last week, was written as a missionary support letter. I hope you didn't miss that. A support letter. The apostle Paul felt a calling to preach the gospel in Spain, according to Romans 15, 22. And he was going to deliver a financial gift to the needy saints in Jerusalem. So benevolence and the care of people in the midst of their need was important. After he delivered that gift in Jerusalem, he planned to visit Rome and he was going to ask them for financial support for his missionary journey to Spain. Now there's convincing evidence that the Apostle Paul made it to Spain, although evidence outside of the Bible. And what's fascinating is that the book of Romans is one of the most theologically thick books in all of the New Testament, and it has a missions focus. Mark this down in your mind and heart. It's really important, it's important for us as a church, it's important for those of you who are Christians. Theology fuels missiology. Theology fuels missiology. What I mean by that is this, a big view of God means you're gonna have a big view of the mission of God in the world. Or to say it negatively, churches who fail to see the world have not only failed in missions, they have failed in their theology. So the eighth chapter of Romans is about a theology of suffering. And it's trying to make a connection between a believer's spiritual position and how they live in the world by the spirit. Romans 8.3, Romans 8.12 tell us this. And in Romans 8.18, Paul specifically addresses the issue of suffering, calling believers to see their hardships differently. Here's what he says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. His point is that believers in Jesus see the world differently because of the lenses that they bring to suffering. But that's not all that they see differently. They also see the world differently. Again, verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the re revealing of the sons of God. They see the world differently, and this vision of seeing the world differently should be part of the fuel that motivates for people to live on mission. Verse 19 tells us that creation waits with eager longing. The idea is this, that believers in Jesus are not only waiting for the final consummation of their relationship with Jesus, meaning for Jesus to return and for everything wrong to be made right, for sin to be dealt with once and for all, the devil to be cast out and no more temptation. But Paul also says, a broken world is waiting for things to be made right. He's calling us to understand that there's a, a macro plan, a sovereign plan that God is unfolding 
A reminder that our suffering individually isn't just about us. That we are the only ones, we are not the only ones rather, waiting for relief. That the entire created order is waiting and longing for the restoration. Context here, what Paul is talking about is more than just individuals. He pictures a created world that waits with hushed expectancy for what is yet to come. The idea is that Christians are waiting, but the entire created order is waiting. The tragedy is, though, is that the created order doesn't always know that it's waiting. What it knows is something is wrong with the world, something isn't right. Oh, there's moments of beauty and grandeur and awe, things that are so attractive and enjoyable, but right behind it is ugliness and brokenness and horror. We live in a world filled with life and laughter and joy, but we also live in a world with death and tears and grief. And the Bible calls this waiting. We're alive. We're doing things. The sun rises, the sun sets, days, weeks, and years are spent, and yet the whole creation is waiting. There's something more. How do all the dots connect? C.S. Lewis, in regards to Christianity, connected these dots by calling the New Testament a true myth. And by myth, he doesn't mean something that isn't true, but is a story that explains your reality. And Lewis argued that everyone has mythology in how they translate their understanding of the world into how they live. He defines it this way, a deep longing for something transcendent while not entirely accessible in our present experience that is deeply fulfilling. It's the way that we make sense of the world It's the way that every human being in a broken world answers questions like, who is God? What's wrong with the world? How are sins forgiven? What happens when we die? These are the questions that we ask when we are waiting. And the reason that global missions exists is that God provides the answers through the person and work of Jesus. And yet sadly, Billions and billions of people in the world have no hope because they answer those questions entirely wrongly. For example, when it comes to salvation, answering the question, who is God, why are we here, how are sins forgiven? Muslims believe that if you practice and repeat the five pillars of Islam, fasting, pilgrimage, giving alms, prayer, and confessing Muhammad as the prophet, then maybe, maybe you'll make it into everlasting life, but you're never quite sure if you've done enough. If if a person's Hindu, it is that they wanna eliminate all the evil in their life until they're pure enough to merge with Brahma. If a person is Buddhist, it's removing all desire that leads to eternal bliss. If it's a Jew, it's to obey the Jewish laws and customs and be part of a people. If you're just a pagan, you're going to try to appease the gods and spirits in order to be rewarded. The point of all of this is that the entire created order is waiting. These are just a few of the ways that our world tries to make sense of the world as we wait, but you can imagine how hopeless, how oppressive, how dark, 
how utterly pointless it would be to think that every day you've got to measure up to some sort of unknown divine standard and maybe, maybe, maybe you've done enough. Enter the gospel of Jesus Christ, which offers this clarion call, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The hope of the gospel is that somebody paid your debt, that Jesus did something that you couldn't do, and that your standing before a holy God is complete and perfect and forgiven and righteous, not because you have been perfect, but because you know somebody who was, and his name is Jesus. It means that Christians, while we wait, we live in this reality that Jesus is for us. Last Sunday night after our prayer meeting was just about ended, we sang the beautiful song of a blessing over our missionaries, and it ends with, he is for you. It was stunning, a stunning moment for us to say over them, he is for you. And that is deeply rooted in what it means to be a Christian. So, so listen, if you're a follower in Jesus, can I just remind you, no matter what has happened this week, no matter how often you've blown it, no matter how bad the week has been, how confusing or hard it is, you are here today, listen to me. He is for you. He paid for your life. He offers atonement. And while you wait, you rest knowing that your sins are forgiven. This is good news. <laughs> it's why it needs to be said and proclaimed everywhere. And if you're here today or listening online, listen, if you're not yet a Christian, why not come to Jesus today? You, you must be so tired and weary of trying to measure up and measure up and measure up and balance the scales. And the offering of the gospel, friend, is come to Jesus. The world is waiting. Here's the second thing. The world is broken. No surprise, verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The word futility there, futility, very important word, it means empty. The world was subjected to purposelessness, to folly, to vanity. Well, you can think of it this way. You spend all your life and you look at what you've done and you're like, what's the point of this? Exactly. Exactly. That futility is baked into the very fabric of the created order. We keep chasing things that don't fulfill us. We keep going after things like, oh, this'll be the thing. That'll be the thing. This'll be the thing. And he just keeps, nope, 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 nope. And God baked that into the created order because he's the thing through the person and work of Jesus. The Apostle Paul described it this way in Romans 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. Here's the world. We claim to be wise, but we're fools. Why? Because we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Or in the book of Isaiah, we make idols out of wood, the same wood that we burn to make food. 
So the futility is part of the entire created order. Adam and Eve and their disobedience in the garden brought sin into the world. And Genesis 3 records that very curse that curses the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your lives. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So what this text is telling us is that everything about the created order declares at some level that this isn't the way it's supposed to be, that sin has fundamentally perverted the place that we live. And every week, every day, sometimes every hour, we get a sense of the futility and the brokenness of the world. And it's a reminder that something is wrong, something is broken. And the Bible tells us that brokenness is the consequence of sin. Which is why the passage says the creation was subjected not willingly, meaning the curse and its effects are something that was done to the created order. It was received by God in response to sin, and it was meant to be a warning that something's not right. Verse 21 goes on and it says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is the longing for the end of death and terminal illnesses and dysfunctional families and marital breakups and viruses that make us sick and people who put them on our computers and all kinds of other maladies connected to the human race. This is the story of our world and Paul makes it very clear because he wants the hope to be clear. The futility that God subjects the creation to is not pointless, but it is intentional so that God's people will know where to place their hope and the world will know that something's not right. So the brokenness in the world points to something more. And here's the question that I want you to ask yourself if you're a Christian. When you encounter the brokenness of the world, do you see it through the lens of gospel hope? Or do you just see brokenness? You see something on the news, and do you just see those people got a lot of problems? You see and hear a statistic, and you think, man, that's a shame. Or is there something within you that feels the tension if Jesus could enter this mix, that could be transformed. When you see something, does your heart ache for Christ to return? Last week or two weeks ago, Nate showed us this map that I'm sure you're familiar with. It shows us the places where 3.28 billion unreached peoples live. In the red, this is a really important map to remember. The tragedy is, though, this doesn't... This doesn't move us, most of us. We don't often feel the lostness of the world. And one of the reasons why we dedicate several Sundays a year to missions is for the purpose of restoking the flames of our passions, not just about what you know about missions, but what you feel about missions. You see, it's one thing to know that the world is lost. It's another to feel its lostness. A few weeks ago, I told you that my nickname for Pastor Nate Irwin is the missions stud. I went home and wondered, should I, should I have said that in church? I'm glad I did. 
created a t-shirt for my brother, which I'm excited about. But that nickname didn't come out of nowhere. That nickname came because I've been with Nate overseas. And I started thinking about all the experience that I've, that I've had with Nate overseas. And those experience overseas on vision trips have helped my heart to feel because my eyes have seen. And quite frankly, I want the same for you. I want you to think about your year this next year. Instead of going on vacation, I want you to go to a hard place so you can see so that you will feel because you may know about unreached people groups, but you may not feel what you need to feel. For example, I've been with Nate as we prayed over a newly purchased property in northern Togo, where now the Hospital of Hope resides, reaching unreached peoples from Central Africa that would never have been able to hear the gospel without a hospital. Hear the the gospel without a hospital. I remember Nate taking me on a tour of a seminary dorm room in India where we talked with students who were desperate to return home to preach the gospel, and inside their closet were two shirts. They only owned two shirts. And yet they're passionate to go home, no matter the cost, financial or personal. Remember teaching together in a small Bible institute in Nagpur, India, where it must have been 130 degrees. I taught first. It didn't go well. No one understood anything. Nate got up and taught and did a phenomenal job. And I told him from now on, whenever we teach together, you go first. (laughs) I learned from Nate how to pray for a meal in a country where it would be unwise to bow our heads and close our eyes. When we arrived at an airport and I saw thousands of Muslim men dressed for the Hajj, the pilgrimage, lining the airport, and inside me was a trigger. They must all be terrorists. He helped me to see that sea of humanity differently. When we visited a mosque, despite a very aggressive worshiper who didn't want us to come in because we might defile it, Nate helped to negotiate our entrance, and I wondered if we'd ever come out. We walked through a marketplace in in, in India that was so packed with people. Nate got ahead of me, and I said, hey, are you sure it's okay that we're here? He turned around, it's completely safe. And I'm like, it doesn't feel safe, Nate. (laughs) I stood on a balcony and looked over a city where there was no gospel witness for over a thousand years, and with tears in my eyes, realized the gospel has just come to this region because of what we've been investing in. We sat in a thatch-roofed roof hut in the most primitive village I've ever seen in Cambodia and listened to a man tell us about how he came to faith in Christ and how he planted house churches in a village that I couldn't believe the level of poverty. And I remember sitting in the living room as leaders of a house church thanked him with tears for a new translation of the Bible the College Park Church had helped fund. It's been said that the heart cannot taste what the eyes have not seen. Maybe a better way to say it would be the heart cannot feel what the eyes have not seen. Church, it's one thing to know about the brokenness of the world. It's another to see it. And that's one of the reasons why in the next year you ought to consider going on a vision trip. It'd be good for your soul to see the world. The world is waiting, the world is broken. Third, the world is incomplete. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, and now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says that the whole creation has been groaning together in childbirth. He uses this very familiar human and earthly metaphor to indicate that something painful but something good is happening, that there's a, there's a progression, that labor has begun, that the groaning and the pains of creation is moving somewhere. Remember, theology fuels missiology. We know what that movement is. In verse 23 and 24, he speaks of the issue as believers groaning as they wait for the final step of their redemption. That's our posture even now. We, we know the story God is writing. We know the plan of salvation. We know the plan of redemption, that one day Jesus is gonna return and make everything right. And as a result, we see suffering through a different set of eyes. But it also means, dear church, that we must see the world through different eyes. Because it's not just that we're groaning. It's that the whole creation is groaning. And one of the reasons you need to know that right now is because of the last two years and all the difficulties and what it feels like to move and how stressful things are and how much anxiety we feel, all of those things are real and legitimate and hard and we need to work through those and help disciple each other through all of them. But we also need to be reminded that we aren't the only people in the world who are groaning. Suffering can make you selfish. Suffering can make you self-focused. It can make you think, I'm the only one on the planet who's struggling. Listen, you are struggling, we're all struggling, but there are people around the world who have such incredible need. And what if, what if this was a season, what if this was a season where in the midst of trying to live through survival mode, we actually thought, through theologically informed eyes, this is a moment to be reminded of my calling to reach the nations. Two weeks ago, Nate shared this graphic. It's how we do missions here. This is really important. We have strategic partners, six of them, people on the ground doing great work that we help fund and encourage. We have missionaries like you saw today who are going. So what is our responsibility as a church? Here we are, going, prayer, and giving. Going, I just talked about vision trips, giving. Here's the thing. Some of you are phenomenal at making money and you ought to make lots of money. I'm serious. You ought to make lots and lots of money and then give as much of that money away because every missionary needs money in order to do their work. It costs money to translate the Bible. It costs money to try and reach unreached people groups. They're hard to get to. Often they're not, we're not wanted there and that's why it's more expensive. So if you can make money, do it brother or sister and then give that money away as much as you possibly can. There's also another thing on that slide, which is the idea of prayer. One of our goals of REACH is to increase our prayer posture as it relates to our Barnabas teams. Those Barnabas teams are a group of people who pray regularly for the advancement of the gospel. And I want you to think that if there's nothing else that you can do, maybe you, you're giving, you're investing, but maybe you can't go. 
Or maybe your giving capacity is not what you would hope it would be. None of us lack praying capacity. When you walk out the door this morning, you're gonna get our little flip chart of all of our missionaries. You could do that. You could just take a moment and pray for our missionaries and it would be good for them because they need the praying. They need your intercession. But it would also be good for you because we need to be reminded that the center of the universe is not us and of all the hardships that we're dealing with, we've got things we gotta work through, absolutely. We got hard things, yes we do, but there's a broken world as well. And it's helpful to be reminded that there's a groaning in childbirth, that God is at work, and that there's a movement of what God is doing to reach the nations. A simple way for you to link what you believe with what you do is to pray. So here's a really quick, easy step. We're gonna leave this up for a little bit. If you wanna know more about joining a Barnabas team, Barnabas team is just a special group of people dedicating to praying for one missionary unit, interceding for them, just making it personal, making it local. I hope that some of you will take this step and here's what you can do, grab your phone. You're allowed to use your phone in church right now. This is the only time, grab your phone and you can, this is the only time you're allowed to text somebody in the middle of a sermon, I'm giving you permission. This is a Protestant permission. All right, there you go. So this is 317-793-3272. Text the word pray to that and someone will get in contact with you about just more information, not an obligation to sign up, no commitment, not gonna sign a year's you know, kind of contract or things like that. You can get out if it's not what you want, but here's the thing. Some of you need to take that step because it's been a very hard and understandably self-focused year and you need to pull back and be reminded, I got a big God, there's a big world, there's a lot of needs, let's go, let's go. Church, the world is waiting, the world is broken, the world is incomplete and if theology fuels missiology, and if the call to go is essential to what it means to be a church, then that has to be more than just some words on a bulkhead. To go, to give, to pray, is the vital way that we wait with patience until the Lord returns. And so we groan and we hear the groaning of the world as we wait for our soon coming king. We're one week closer to his return. He's coming soon. I can't wait. Father in heaven, we pray that you'd give us the grace needed to through our sufferings and difficulties, the hardship that we all are walking through at varying levels to determine how it is and in what ways you want us to take one small step towards the needs of the world. Lord, we thank you that you're a global God, that there'll be peoples from every tribe, nation, and tongue around your throne. We celebrate your work, and in our brokenness, we say to you, God, 
Use our church, use us to reach the world, whether it's giving or going or praying. Lord, keep us on mission. Remind us of our calling to go and make disciples of every nation. And we pray this in Christ's name.